0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. We make commitments in life not knowing what the future holds. And it's not unusual for us to agree to do something and then find a few years down the road that what we've committed to do is not the thing that seems to be the best for us now. We had one idea of how the future might work, and then suddenly another future, another possibility opens up. And the tempting thing to do is to take the easy choice. If you've already settled in, if you already have what you were looking for, what would be the point of going along on this, this unlikely adventure. So yes, they've made a promise, but they have good reason not to keep it. And if they don't keep it, then the leadership of Joshua at the very beginning is going to be tried in a profound way and found wanting. Moses dies and Joshua is commanded to lead, Joshua wastes no time. Joshua doesn't meditate on what God has told him to do. He doesn't go off into the wilderness and pray for a long time to see whether or not he ought to obey he turns around immediately and he gives the order to prepare. This is in verse 10 in our text, beginning in verse 10. Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. So he speaks to all the people. He says, get ready. In three days we're going. In three days, we're going to cross the river and enter into the land that we've been thinking about for 40 years. Now is the time. And immediately, once he's given that order to everyone, he turns his attention to the two and a half tribes who are already settled on this side of the Jordan. To the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you, and they also take possession of the land that the Lord, your God, is giving them, then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. So, you've been given your land, you've settled in your land, but now it's time to take up arms and come with us. You cannot rest. You cannot settle until all your brothers who receive what they've been promised, until they too enter into the land of promise. And immediately the people who were questioned respond in obedience. They had plenty of reason not to, plenty of reason not to go. But immediately when they were called upon to remember the promise they'd made, they remembered. So the first test of Joshua's leadership turns out to be no test at all because there's no gap in the tribes of Israel. There's no absence of faithfulness. The promise that they made, they made sincerely and they intend to keep even if it costs them because they realize something. They realize something that we could stand to remember ourselves. They realize that their future cannot be built by forgetting their past. They cannot turn their backs on where they've come from. They cannot turn their backs on who's been with them. That the only way they can enter into the future that's been promised to them is to remember the past that binds them all together. In their need, they had made a commitment to God. And now that that need has passed, they would not forget it just because they no longer had the, the, the necessity. They may already have their reward. But they will not take their rest until all Israel can enter into its rest. For the people of God, there is no rest until we all rest. There is no rest until we all rest. Here at the outset of Israel's journey into the Promised Land, we have a stunning example of what it means to be the people of God. The, the connectedness of the people, the responsibility that we have toward one another. Israel was 12 tribes, but it was one people, one people. And the fact that two and a half of those tribes had already settled did not change the fact that they would enter united into the promised land. They would not leave their brothers to fend for themselves. God had promised rest to Israel, and that rest had been promised to them as a whole. Not just as individuals. It had been promised to them all. All Israel must possess the land. And until all Israel possessed the land, then all Israel would be on the march. It wouldn't be every man for himself. It wouldn't be see to your own needs first. Instead, until the battle was over, everyone would fight. Everyone would pull their weight. The tribes of Reuben and Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, they already had their land, but their fight was just beginning because there would be no rest until we all rest. And what's true for Israel is true for the church. What's true for Israel is true for the church. Just as they were bound together in the promise made to them, we too are bound together in the promise that is made For us, there will be no rest for any of us until we all rest. There's a hymn we sing sometimes, The Church is One Foundation, speaking of the unity of the church. Oftentimes, we sing these old songs without paying close attention to the words and what they say. But there's a reason why these songs endure. And oftentimes, it's not because of the music they're set to it's because of the profundity of the ideas expressed. Listen to these words from the church's one foundation. Elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth, her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth, one holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. As a church, as a people of God, we come from different tribes, different nations, different backgrounds. But we are one people, made one in Christ. We have one Lord, one faith, one birth, one holy food, one hope. In all this, we are one. And we will not rest until we as one are victorious, until we are all victorious. There are lessons in this. There's a cosmic lesson, there's a global lesson, and there's a local lesson. If you think cosmically, if you think of the church throughout all history, the lesson is... There's no rest for any of us until we all rest. Now, I know when we think about uh, the history of believers who've gone on before, it's tempting to think something like this. Uh, those people lived their lives. They were faithful to God. They believed in Christ. They had peace. And as they approached their deathbed, they died in Christ. And then their spirits left their bodies and they went on to their eternal reward. They followed us to the place where we will go, and now they are not consumed with the cares of this world. They no longer care, or even conscious of what's happening here. They have now entered into that rest. And we hope someday to follow them. We hope someday to have that same air of sort of divine forgetfulness where all of our problems have have disappeared, and we too can fill Uh, fulfilled. We can feel as if we possess all that that was promised to us. That's not actually where the dead in Christ are at. The dead in Christ have not entered into their final reward. They have not entered into their final state to live eternity as disembodied spirits. Instead, they wait. And we are told in Scripture that when Christ returns, they return with him. The armies of Christ, the believers who have gone before, remain concerned with what happens here because their salvation isn't complete until ours is. And when we die as they did, our salvation will not be complete until the last, the last of Christ's children has come to him, been gathered to him. It's not over, this work of salvation, until it ends for us all in that final consummation. In that we are united. One hope, one future hope that unites believers, past, present, and future, cosmically in a single struggle, a single fight, and there will be no rest until we all rest. Which means the rest we should focus on is the rest that is to come. That's the cosmic lesson. There's a global one as well. As we look at the church scattered around the world, some of us are more at rest than others. Some of us are at ease. Some of us have made it. We are established. We are well off. We are not persecuted. Our lives are not in danger. Uh, we may tell ourselves that there are penalties to us in our society for believing what we do, but let's be honest, historically speaking and globally speaking, These are nothing in comparison to what other people face. Nothing. So it would be easy for us to take comfort in the security and safety of being an American Christian. What it means to have the the rights and the freedoms and the privileges that we do and to forget that there are more Christians who lack these things than have them. That the church is one But the church is not all one in prosperity. Not all one in comfort and in safety. And if we don't remember our brothers and sisters who continue to struggle, if our hearts are not with them, if we are content to be on one side of the river while they suffer on the other, then we don't do justice to those tribes who marched forward when they were called upon. To do so, we need to be united with all the church. If that's true globally, it's true locally as well. It's true in our city and with other believers. It's, it's true also in this congregation where we have a lot of difference. There are mighty gaps between us in some cases. Some of us are very well off. Some of us are not. Some of us suffer. Some of us do not as much. There are gaps between us. And it's easy sometimes to look at those differences and to say to ourselves, well, there's a reason. There's a reason for that. God prospers some and not others, perhaps because of some virtue. He sees uh, a faithfulness in me that he rewards with success. Others, not so much. And it's easy to be comfortable with a lack of unity, with the divisions that we see amongst ourselves. And think that it's okay for us to be one theoretically and divided in reality. But Paul says in Galatians 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If you want to be righteous, if you want to be obedient, bear one another's burdens. Don't be content with this lack of unity, with this lack of comfort, of rest. Paul says later in Romans 12 that we though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Members one of another. When we think about our relationship to Christ and we think about our salvation, we think of it so often individually. What God is doing for me, in my heart, in my life. And we lose sight of the fact that that He's doing it in us. It isn't just me that he's building into a dwelling place for himself. It is us. It is us. You can't reach your future by forgetting your past, but you can't enter into your rest until we all enter into our rest. I think perhaps the number one thing that keeps the church from being a true community of Christ is how easy it is for individual members of the body to become satisfied with a premature rest, to reach a certain level of comfort, a certain level of knowledge, where it's okay now to relax. It's okay to take it easy, to feel like your race is run, that your fight is over. And if you think that it's your fight alone, it's easy, once you've experienced a little victory, a little conquest, to think the fight is over. But the fight that is yours in Christ, is not yours alone. And it hasn't finished until everyone is victorious. The only way you can enter into rest in this life is by letting go of the bonds that that link you to your brothers and sisters in Christ. The problem with that kind of individualism is that there's no salvation outside the church. There's no salvation outside the church. It's a statement that uh, comes to us from church history and means different things to different people. But if you think about that idea, what I mean when I say there's no salvation outside the church is that Jesus saves us as a people. Jesus saves us as a people, not just as individuals. He does save us as individuals, but he saves us individuals as a people. We don't stop being individuals, but we're not saved as individuals alone. Jesus saves us by canceling the consequences of our sin, but also by building us up into a dwelling place for God. And those two things, as we saw last time, go together. Those two parts of salvation cannot be separated. That's what I mean when I say there's no salvation outside the church. There's no salvation without being made into the church. Into the dwelling place for God. And what does that mean for us? You might think of this analogically and imagine life as one of those obstacle courses. If uh, you go through basic training in the military, or a lot of people now, you don't even have to do this. You can volunteer to do like a tough mutter or something. If you, if you really are, are deeply self-loathing, you could punish yourself voluntarily to prove you can do it. And at a certain point in the race. A wall, a a tall wooden wall will be there that you'll have to get over. Right? You've got to get over the wall. Some people are different than others. Some of us are light as a feather. Others are heavy as lead. Some are, are fast, some are slow, some are weak, some are strong. Some people will struggle to get over that wall. Some people will struggle to get, like, off the ground. You get the idea. So there's a question that comes to you on that obstacle course, and it comes especially to the strong. It comes especially to the one who is able from the ground to leap onto the wall and and, and get a hold of the top and pull himself up. As he pulls himself up, there he is, straddling the top of the wall. And the question is this, what do you do when you find yourself at the top of the wall? You have two choices. One of them is to keep going. You can keep going, you can land on the ground, you can keep running until you reach the finish line, you can be the first person across the line, the winner. But suppose you only win. Suppose the prize is only awarded when the whole team gets across the line. If you don't get a prize by getting over first and getting to the line, if the only time the prize is awarded is when the whole team gets across, then when you find yourself at the top of the wall, it might change the way you behave if you're strong. Because if you're strong and you find yourself at the top of the wall and you realize, I don't get my reward until we all cross the line, then you don't just jump off and keep running. You reach down and you help. You reach down to the ones who can't get up as easily as you can, and you lift them up with you. And you haven't crossed the wall until everyone's crossed the wall. You keep going. You keep lifting. You keep aiding and helping. And then you all cross the line together as a team, as a tribe, as a people. You all enter into your rest to your reward together. Some of us are living as if all that matters is that we cross the line. We're living as if God has given us gifts and advantages and strengths because He means for us to finish first. But what if God gave you the strength that you possess? And what if He gave you the gifts that you possess and the advantages that you possess, not so that you can arrive first, but so that you can lift others up with you? If you look at the front of your order of worship, read these words of John Calvin. He says, All the blessings we enjoy are divine deposits committed to our trust on this condition that they should be dispensed for the benefit of our neighbors. If you believe that you serve a God who takes greatest pleasure in glory and you winning the race first, Then you are not trusting in the God, uh, the self-sacrificing God who gave himself up to raise others up. This is a challenge to us, this simple reality. When the people of Israel marched into the promised land, they all marched. They all went. Even those who had already received their reward marched because there was no rest until they all rested. And it's a lesson to us as well as Christians. There can be no rest for us, no comfort, no slacking off until we all rest. We cannot run ahead alone. We must carry one another. We must reach down and help. If you need an example of one who reaches down to help, look no further than the Son of God. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who, in order to enter into covenant relation with lowly human beings, had to, as the confession says, voluntarily condescend. He had to come down. He had to lower himself. As high as he was, he had to get down, to reach down, in order to lift us up. And now Jesus comes Like Joshua, Jesus takes command of his people. And Jesus says, it's time to go. It's time to cross the river. It's time to enter into the land. And as Joshua, back before the wilderness, came to the people and said these words, remember, they didn't listen. They resisted. They didn't want to hear it because they knew the dangers Just as it was for Joshua, it is for Jesus as well. He comes to us. He says it's time to go. It's time to cross over and enter in. And what we see are the problems with that. We see are the things we'll have to give up to sacrifice. the, The the difficulties. Or we see our circumstances and realize that maybe our need is not so great. That a Savior in time may be a good thing, but not now. We don't need him now. So we seek as they saw it with Joshua, stones to throw at him, seek distance from him, we put him off, we resist. We choose to wander in a wilderness of alienation and self-regard, when Christ calls us to forget ourselves. When Christ calls us, no matter where we are, no matter how comfortable we are, no matter how many advantages we possess, He says to all of us, the haves and the have-nots, take up your cross and follow Me. And I pray that we as a congregation, like the tribe of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, would answer the right way that we wouldn't think about our homes, that we wouldn't think about our comforts, we wouldn't think about the things we already enjoy, but instead when Jesus calls, we would say wherever you command, we will follow. We will go. And we will bring with us all who need us. Our prayer to Jesus should be like the words that they spoke to Joshua. We will follow you. Wherever you go, only be strong and courageous for us. Jesus, be strong and courageous for us because we cannot be for ourselves. Be strong and courageous for us and we will follow you wherever you lead. And we won't rest until we all rest. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsioufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.